Today on the Cameron Journal podcast, I'm really happy to have Dr. Drew Memignanti joining us. He is an MD, and he has written a new book called The Healing Connection, Creating a Partnership for Your Health, and he is analyzing how insurance companies, administration, and hospital administration has gotten in the way of good, old-fashioned patient care. As longtime listeners will know, healthcare is a subject I am passionate about, Um as an oft user of it, um, and also as someone who realizes that one of the most pressing socioeconomic needs we have in this country is healthcare. And even for those who can't access healthcare, sometimes the difficulty that they have with it. So thank you, Dr. Drew, for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast. Just Drew is fine. You can drop the doctor stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, why don't you start us off by telling us about your book and what inspired you to write it? Okay. Well, I retired from a 40-year career in practicing emergency medicine in April of 2020. And I had to mm. decide what I was going to do with my time after retirement. And I knew there was no way I was going to stop thinking about healthcare and medicine because having spent that much time and unfortunately, I also had a 50-year career as a chronic autoimmune disease patient. So I have had a lot of experiences from both sides of the bed, both inside the patient bed and alongside it. I thought I had some observations that were worth sharing. So, And the thing that happened, I had a little mini medical school reunion just last week in Chicago with a half a dozen of people. I went to medical school in New Jersey, but we chose Chicago for the West Coast people. And we were sharing the idea that we all felt that we were... Uh, that was on our watch that the corporate takeover of medicine has happened. Not that we were to blame for it. We didn't feel responsible for it, but we felt sad about the fact that while we were practicing medicine, it has really been taken over by dollar-driven decision-making and business interests. And most patients are really shielded from knowing that. So I decided yeah, to write what the book you, to bring yeah, it. I, I, I want to use that as a jumping off point. What, what, do you know, like, what's in your opinion, what led to this whole, you know, sort of commodification of healthcare? Well, it's, um, there's a lot of, everybody knows that doctors make a good income. That's a fact. And that healthcare is very expensive. And it's a natural common sense thing to think, well, the first is what causes second, because doctors are making so much money. That's why it's so expensive. Elizabeth Rosenthal, who's a physician herself and a New York Times columnist, wrote a series of New York Times articles called Paying Till It Hurts. That was in the, around 2013, I think. And then she wrote a follow-up book called uh, An American Sickness. And she very clearly lays out the fact that the, the dollars in healthcare are not going to the physicians. Some of them are, of course, but people in the administrative roles in health, health systems, you can no longer talk about single hospitals. There are still some single hospitals, but most of them have been gobbled, gobbled up by larger healthcare systems. and. Uh, uh, health insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, there's lots of dollars to be derived from healthcare because it's it's something that's unavoidable, illness and disease. And uh, you don't really have to even deliver good healthcare to make very good dollars so that people, pretty quick business interests, pretty quickly realize that the way you make more money is just by generating more visits. And so as long as, that's why the pressure that's placed upon us as physicians is to see people faster, spend less time with them, get them out the door, get the new, new person in, and be what's called pro, be productive, which we hate that as physicians because we're really not producing anything. And they, it's the basically the customer's always right business model applied to healthcare, which is just not, it's not applicable in healthcare. 
Yeah, one of the things that was mentioned in your book description was that patients who are set aside of their health care have more hospitalizations, go to the doctor more, and die more often, and yeah. those who are dissatisfied don't. That seems so counterintuitive. Break that down for us. How does that work? Yeah, that was only one study, I admit it, in the book. It's only one study, but uh, what they did was they asked people how satisfied they were with their care, and then they followed them down the line and determined, yeah, as you point out, Cameron, they more they were they were admitted to the hospital more often. They more money was spent on their health care, more prescription drug money was spent, and they had a higher death rate. Now, I don't think being satisfied causes you to die sooner, but all those other things, being hospitalized, taking more medications, probably put you at greater risk of dying. I think you know there's. Medical error occurs and hospital-acquired infections occur. So the more time you spend in the hospital, the more medications you're on, puts you at greater risk of dying. I think someone will do follow-up studies of that. That was in 2012 out of Johns Hopkins, so you know, a legitimate source for the information. Yeah, no, that's when I saw that, I was I was a bit stunned because it seemed <laughs> so counterintuitive. But it makes sense, you know. That's why you know I've always I've always tried to avoid the doctor in the hospital whenever possible um it's like why do i want to go to the house where all the sick people are that that doesn't so i i always joke i said if i'm at the hospital i'm desperate that's i don't just show up randomly you know yeah i've always um, said if you if you can get away with avoiding hospitals and doctors that's a good thing yeah on the flip side healthcare is really not a diy project you should become very involved with your doctor in deciding what you want to try to achieve and how, what's the best, safest way to achieve that. So you need to be fully engaged as a patient, but you shouldn't decide that you should be the director of your healthcare. You are, a, I, so I use the word partnership in the title of my book. It's a partnership. My expertise is in how to get you where you want to go and whether where you want to go is at a safe place to be. For some of the patients who see me where they want to go is they want to get an unlimited, unlimited number of narcotic medications to treat their chronic pain, which narcotic pain make medications have a role in chronic pain, but they, they're not a first line role. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously coming out of the opioid crisis, which hit the Rust Belt particularly hard and all this type of thing, a lot of, you know, there were obviously some doctors on the grift, you know, those places and warehouses pay $200 and I'll give you whatever the hell you want sort of thing. Um, and people got fined and had medical licenses pulled and all this type of thing. And I found it interesting. I don't know if, if you have any insight on this. In that whole crisis, it was, it was very, well, very rarely was Purdue Pharma blamed for that. The doctors got the blame, you know, as being the arbiters of all of this sort of thing. Um, and it seems that that's a repeating theme in our conversations on healthcare. Just like you just said, the doctor's high salaries are blamed for the high costs. It's like, well, nobody thinks about the three, you know, the three layers of administration above that doctor who are all making very nice salaries. You know, that's cost as well. You know, the juggernaut that is medical billing and coding. That's a whole industry that only exists because of health insurance companies. You know, exactly. all of these things like add up to these additional costs. So why do you think doctors are on the front line of being blamed for the problems in the healthcare system. Well, we're the really the only people that patients see is us. You know, I ask how many how often have you ever seen a hospital administrator yourself? Probably not. Never. You know, no. I actually even rarely saw them in the emergency department. They knew to steer clear of the emergency department because there's actual sick, icky people in the emergency department. So they don't want to be around sick, needy people. 
They want to be, they want to be in their comfortable offices. Not running a healthcare business is not an easy thing, you know, with uh, the cost of uh, managing employees and benefits for employees. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not a business person, but basically, what they're doing is they're they're really playing patients off against doctors. They're saying to uh, that's why every time you go into a health facility, you immediately get some kind of a email saying, "How did you enjoy? Were you satisfied by your?" care today. And what right. they do with those care uh, questionnaires, they roll them up like a piece of newspaper you're going to hit a bad dog with. And they hit us on, and they say, look, these people weren't satisfied. Keep those people satisfied. And the way to keep them satisfied is to see them quicker, treat them faster, see them quicker, keep them satisfied, give them what they want. And we know as doctors that sometimes what you want is not what you need. Our job is to figure out what you need. We take into account what you think and what you want to try to achieve. But need medical need has to supersede uh, medical wants or personal wants, and uh, yeah. I think I think the uh, the predicament we're in is that doctors and patients alike both know that there's flaws with the system that we would like to change. So we have the incentive to change the system, but we don't have the power to change the system. The people who have the power to change the system are healthcare administrators, pharmaceutical administrators, and politicians. Who have the power to make changes, but they don't have any incentive to make the change. We're not completely guilt-free as a society because back in 2017, for the first time in history, uh, the healthcare industry employed more people than retail or manufacturing did. Used to be it was manufacturing, retail, and then healthcare were in like one, two, and three, but now we're number one healthcare. So when you have more people employed in healthcare across the country and everybody's satisfied except us doctors and except us patients, there's really no incentive to change the system. No, I just certainly, now, no, I mean, back in the, you know, in those old TV shows and all this type of thing, the, the hospital was always run by the older kindly doctor, you know, sort of thing in the white coat, you know, and if you were on the right show, he drove a Ford Granada. Um, and so, um, what what happened to the older kindly doctor who ran the hospital? How did we end up with an army of hospital administrators? I'm not exactly sure. There are certainly some physicians still in healthcare administration, and sometimes they're there because they didn't like the challenges and the uncertainties involved with clinical care of patients. They like the more certainties involved of we're making business dollars decisions here. We don't have to figure out really what's wrong with the patient. Um, so they're there, yeah. and I, I think they're not they're not committed to a clinical career any longer. So they sort of get absorbed into the mindset, the dollar-driven mindset is my own feeling. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, even just like the the structure, you know, hospitals didn't used to be corporations. They were nonprofits. They were ran by churches. Um, the Catholic yeah. church, unless you were, unless you were in the Protestant upper Midwest, then it was like, you know, the Lutheran, you know, each, you could always tell a region by the religion of its hospital systems, Baptist in the South in Seattle, we had Swedish because of Scandinavian, like, but we also had Franciscan Catholic. Um, so what happened, what, how did we lose, you know, hospitals being ran by a church or a nonprofit into this now profit driven model? I'm not exactly sure, but it was, I think it was so, so slow and gradual. I mean, anybody, if you said, look, I'll pay you, uh, I can pay you $50,000 for your job, or I can pay you $100,000 to do the same job. If you were smart, you'd say, well, wait, what do I have to do to get my income from 50 to 100? And if it's if it's compromised my principles, then I'm going to say, no, thank you. And I think um, 
the way in which clinical doctors would have to compromise their principles to meet business needs was so subtle and so slow that incremental that you said, okay, well, that's okay. And they've rationalized to themselves why slightly cutting corners, you know, was allowable. And then the corners, the cutting of the corners got more and more major to the point where, you know, we're actually doing things that are dangerous for people now. Yeah, no, that is, that certainly seems to be the, seems to be the case. So um, when it comes, you said, mentioned that you'd had obviously experience as a patient and all this type of thing. Um, why do you think that by and large, the patient experience of American healthcare is so, is so shoddy? Because for me personally, doctors, if I'm late, my appointment gets canceled. The doctor can be two hours late and that's a completely normal way of doing business. Um, and, and you know, in this, the, all the mounds of paperwork, nobody seems to be nice, kind or friendly. It's just, you know, it's, uh, it's the factory of healthcare. All the humanity has been sucked out. So what do you think the chief, um, patient complaints are and, and how do we address those? Well, on the optimistic side of my book and why I call it the healing connection, I think that the, the interhuman connection between interhuman connections between any two people are healing and, and health beneficially beneficial to your health. You know, and that's why we got by without scientific medicine for eons, because if you went to the natural healer, you know, and you, and they showed spent time with you and gave you attention, that by itself has a healing effect. Um, so I we can reestablish that you and I, as if I'm the physician, you're my patient, I can spend time with you and spend time and Time and talk, you know, is healing all by itself. Technology is an important role. I'm not suggesting we should get rid of technology, but the technology, the high-tech medicine we practice in America has taken the place of the high-touch, high-talk high interaction. The good news is we could all, as patients, decide overnight, I'm going to become more knowledgeable about my health conditions. If you're lucky, maybe have just one or, if you know, some people have one or two. Some people really unlikely have maybe three or four conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol level. But you don't have the limited, you don't have the limitless number of medical conditions that I need to be aware of. So you don't need to be educated as a physician, but you can become a mini expert in your one or two or three or four conditions by reading and investigating, asking questions of your doctors. You might need to ask for a consultation with the dietitian at the hospital to go over how your diet affects those conditions you're being treated for. So we can overnight decide, I'm going to become more knowledgeable about my medical conditions. I'm going to become more engaged in my healthcare with my doctor. And study after study that I refer to in my book shows that if you do those things, you can cut your mortality rate risk in half. It's not like a minor reduction of 5%, 10%. Literally, study after study show that the mortality rate is cut in half for people who are more engaged in their health care. The more engaged you are, the more likely you are to be adherent to the plan that you've come up with with your doctor. So we can, on an, we can't change, you can't change the system as a patient. I can't change it as a patient. I can't change it as a physician. But together, you and I could change our small system, our dyad, as to how we are going to approach your health. And we, we can get significant payoff from that immediately. We're still going to have to deal with what the hospital is doing, what the health insurance is doing. So my purpose for writing the book was to start a public discussion of how we're going to address the things that are outside of control of the physician-patient dyad. I am absolutely convinced step number one is creating that knowledgeable, trusting relationship with the physician so that you can 
make a commitment to the healthcare plan you've derived with that physician. We can do that. We can do that starting tomorrow. You, know, you can make that announcement the next time you're in the office with your doctor, and you can say, "Well, you know, I listened to this funny guy Drew, and he's saying all this stuff, and he said I should become more engaged." So I've I've got more questions today. You might have to get a back-to-back -back, um, appointment with your doctor to spend that much time. If you said that to your doctor, I want to become a much more engaged and activate, activated is the medical term, the activated patient. I want to you be- know, I, It's funny you should mention that because I get, I've gotten so much criticism in the medical field for being so prepared. Like I come in and they're like, oh, what are your medications? What are your supplements? I've got doc, I've got it all printed out neatly with heading. Like I'm autistic, so I come prepared. And so I'm like, I'm like, here you go. Like, here's all the information. I've got all my conditions, hospitalization, like everything is here. Just here you go. And that seems to really throw them off. Like they don't know what to do with someone who's like prepared, documented, good to go. Like the minute I get something new, I immediately go read you know a bunch of stuff the johns hopkins blog is great for that um don't do webmd um but i can only read other things all the things like okay like this is what happens this is what caused it you know and all this type of thing and that i that doesn't and maybe it's because i'm a person of color but that has not always gone well for me the patient no i'm not um, surprised to hear some not some everybody has been so receptive to the fact that i'm like I come in and I I've read some things and I know some things and so I I try to be prepared. That's, I endorse that and it, it's some doctors are not ready for that no doubt so I'm not surprised to hear you say some people put off by that but I think the bulk of uh, the medical profession is beyond desperate for people to become that activate that active in their healthcare. You have to be open minded still that the conclusions you may have come to from your own reading might differ from what I the conclusions I come to from my experience. So there's that you have to, but an open-minded discussion yeah. is, is really in your best interest. And you, well, I would keep yeah, I mean, moving I, I think it's important just be up on the terminology and the basic system. Like, here's what it, here's what it is. Here's the system of the body. It affects, here's like some ways people treat it. Some that are not so good or maybe old fashioned or whatever have you. Um, I mean, I agree. The doctor obviously knows, you know, more than I do. They went to medical school. I read a blog um but it, it, it i find it nice to i feel like and i think this is so true of patients i feel like if you at least have a an exposure to what you're dealing with you feel empowered definitely you know like i i had a kid uh, to, uh in 2022 i had a kidney stone out of nowhere i thought i had appendicitis um i was in terrible amounts of pain all this type of thing and um and it was one of the most harrowing experiences i ever had one of the most harrowing hospital experiences i ever had um and uh and it was you know and in the aftermath of that i was reading about you know what you need to do and how to prevent them and how to you know pass them at home and all this type of thing um and uh and there was you know it was in the follow up appointments and all this type of thing people were amazed that i had taken the time to learn you know, the basics of, oh, these form in the kidneys and we pass them through and all this, like, I had just gotten like basic, uh, basic up to speed on what this was, where it came from. And people were just shocked, shocked that I took the time to go, you know, do a basic catch up on, okay, here's what I have now. And I will probably have another one in five, within five years. So I'm on year two. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, yeah. that does represent the minority of patients who come in informed in a significant degree. One of the studies I quote in my book said, pointed out that only 12% of the U.S. population is can be considered healthcare literate. In other mm -hmm. words, 
they define that as being able to obtain, understand, and apply healthcare information. Some people, um, some of the, our older people are still in the paternalistic mode of bring your problems to the doctor and make, you know, let the doctor deal with all the issues. But younger people, I, I can you can access good information on the internet. You can access misinformation also. But uh, when 80 8% of the American population is considered healthcare illiterate, you know, that certainly contributes to the cost of healthcare. So congratulations for being in the 12%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, but that's the funny thing is I, I find, and I'm not surprised you cite that number because it does seem like, you know, they're so shocked, like, oh my goodness, this person is mildly informed, very prepared, you know, and is, and is understanding what we're saying. And they, you know, and I think that contributes, and this is the other thing I experienced as a patient is so many medical people treat you like you're stupid and it, it's humiliating, you know, really. Um, and, but when you say, you know, most of the population isn't healthcare literate and it's a very rare as the patient who's actually informed, it is no wonder because the vast majority of the people they see in their clinical day have no clue. And basically, Nothing. or yeah. have a minimal, minimal insight. And it's, it's, yeah. they're, they're, it's kind of complicated and scaring, scary issues, health, health issues. So I can understand why people are reluctant, but we can no longer treat patients like children in the United States. We can't act like children in the United States and treat people like children in the United States. If we want to stop paying as much as we're paying, we're on an unsustainable trajectory. Elizabeth Rosenthal articles I mentioned earlier, when she put that out in 2013, health, US healthcare was totaling $2.7 trillion and just approaching 18% of uh, the annual GDP in the U.S. It's now, as of 21, it's $4.3 trillion we're spending for healthcare in the U.S., and it's 18.3%, it's exceeded 18%. That trajectory cannot continue. And in order to spend less money on healthcare, we have to become more informed patients, and we have to become used to dealing with more informed patients as physicians. Yeah, I mean, do you think, you know, in terms of cost controls and all this type of thing, like, is this something where universal health care can be at all helpful, or is the system just already too burdened down? I'm not sure. The in terms of how we pay for it, that, to me, that's a sec. That's an important question, but that's secondary to we first have to be doing it right. We need to be doing the right things together because no matter how you pay for it, it's going to cost the same 4.3 trillion if we don't change how we're doing it. The studies show that there's yeah. several hundred billion, over $200 billion every year is wasted in the United States on healthcare because we're sometimes we're getting duplicative tests. You come and see me in the emergency department rather than seeing your primary care doctor. I may order tests you've already had. And you might think, of course, I know all the tests you had because it, you think it's in the uh, medical record and very accessible to me. And some of it is, but not all of it is. So by when we if we start off with this partnership in which we're both trying to address the healthcare that you need, not necessarily just what you want, but what you need and do it, not doing more than you need. And also, of course, developing some kind of healthcare equity for people who need more to get what they do need. One more article I'll quote some stats on. In that same year, 2017, 1%, well, 5% of the population accounted for 50% of healthcare expenditures. 1% accounted for 22% of expenditures. And then the low utilizers, 50, the lower 50% of the population, they only accounted for 2.9% of healthcare expenditures. So some people are not getting access to the system 
as easily as they should because they're not getting what they need. And a significant percentage are utilizing too many resources. And the way you get the right number of resources is, again, is getting a relationship with a doctor who, when, when I say to you, well, we don't really know you need to get a CAT scan of your chronic low back pain because you actually had one a couple years ago and nothing has changed. And it's reassuring to get a normal CAT scan result, but it doesn't help you to get better, for example. But right now we have a system where that the insurance company may be kind of like, oh, yes, because we can charge hospitals a lot for that, you know, sort of thing. And so you end up with that inefficiency. Um, it's too much, too many dollar driven decisions. And I, the way I practice medicine, because I was trained by people who were aware of that, even when I was in school in the late 70s and 80s, it was beginning early 80s, it was beginning to get physicians responsible physicians were becoming knowledgeable about the fact that we were over-ordering, over-utilizing healthcare services. And they said, you know, every time you make a decision to make an intervention, weigh the pros and cons of that intervention. And so I, there are many of us are, we're ready for that, but the patients are less ready, I think, than the physicians are for doing less if less is all is required. But well, I think, I think people, especially when you have like a chronic pain thing, get desperate. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, desperate for any kind of relief. Oh, my God, please do something about this sort of thing. Um, And not realizing the solution may not necessarily be a medical intervention, maybe something much less glamorous. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm facing this myself right now. I've been having some lower back, hip, knee things, um, and I'm busily looking for a new chiropractor i've just moved and uh, busy looking for a new chiropractor but i'm also realizing like well cameron you're 35 now perhaps stretching in the morning needs to become part of your routine so out has come the yoga mat (laughs) and now like winnie the pooh we're doing morning stretches and things have improved it's a very unglamorous solution to a very annoying problem yeah we want we we it's great. I love it in medicine when we have a high tech solution. You know, if you come in and you have kidney stone pain, and I got a CAT scan and show that yeah, you, sure enough, you have a kidney stone, right? Like you thought you had, and I thought you had, and but it's small enough. It looks like it's going to pass. You don't need to come in the hospital if we can control your pain. There's no signs of infection. We can avoid the hospitalization and the expense of that. But the right. but tech is not the only answer. Sometimes low tech things like you talk about stretching and exercises and. Yeah, I know, are, are, so, are so vital. And I think that's, you know, uh, a, a difficulty, a difficulty there as well as sometimes the solution is decidedly unglamorous. And right. there's a lot of patients out there that are not necessarily happy with that. And the unfortunate part is moving on to pharmaceuticals. The pharmaceutical industry makes a lot of money off presenting ever more glamorous solutions to problems that could be solved another way. What part in all of this does pharma play? Because you have the reps that travel around talking to doctors, hawking their latest drug, all this type of thing. In in your experience, what was it like working with pharma reps in the whole big pharma industry? Well, most of us have insight into what they're doing. I I would love when they come in and bring in a lunch for us because I run down, grab something to eat and Maybe I could grab a pen and put it in my pocket, but I would not pay any attention to the drug typically. Um, I was a, I was glomming off their food and their free pens without paying attention to their drug typically. Um, yeah. 
No, that we was knew I had a, we knew, my we my family game. doctor growing up, Doctor Susan Dowdy. She always did the same thing. Reps, I always loved they come into her office while you were there for an appointment. They're like, "We're here to see Doctor Susan Dowdy, receptionist." She doesn't really talk to you guys. Like, can I just have two minutes? You're welcome to try. And she would just kind of be like, "I'm I'm busy. Goodbye." Like sort of thing because she she didn't like new medication. She always was it for her. If it hadn't been on the market ten years, don't talk to her. Literally, that's how she was. And so every time, you know, you go in and she'd be like, you know, well, you know, there's this this new drug, but I don't trust it yet. And she would wait a long time to kind of see what a drug was like. So growing up, I was always, it was always the, well, this has been around since the 60s, we trust it. This has been around since the 80s, we trust it, you know, all this type of thing. Um, And so she kind of, but I, I think that's such, and I don't know if this is, if you feel like this way as a doctor, but like, I feel like that's such a grift. Like you, the pharmaceutical company, are going to send around people to encourage doctors to prescribe your new drug to meet your profit goals. That's a fast way to give a lot of something to patients that may or may not need it because you have all, and that's how the opioid crisis started. You have all these financial incentives. Like, how do we, I don't know, does that, does that, did that feel as scuzzy to you as it does to me? It was, uh... The good news, the good, the good advice I got in medical school is to never not be the first or the last to adopt new to adopt new medications. Let other people be the first, but investigate them. Don't be resistant just because they're new. Yeah, I had an interesting experience. I was out of work in emergency medicine for a period of five years after a stroke I had in 1992 at just age 38, and the whole uh, pain scale came in during that time, and uh, the idea. When I came back into emergency medicine in 97, all of a sudden now they were the, the four objective vital signs, temperature, pulse, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. You could objectively measure those. And right alongside them was the pain scale, which was a totally objective value. You ask a patient how much pain they're in. And we were being pressured by Purdue Pharma and other companies at that time to completely abolish patients' pain as completely as possible, as rapidly as possible. And narcotics are the easiest way to do that conveniently like, sold by them and uh so people lost lost sight of the uh or we were pressured again we we're pressured by hospital administrators to keep patients satisfied and surely the easiest way to satisfy somebody in pain is to take that pain away as rapidly as you can and thank god we have narcotics uh, thank god we have them but using them responsibly um became difficult because purdue pharma now we know that the the things they were saying that oxycontin was not addictive I don't know how that ever how anybody ever thought that that could be true but enough people did that it started to be used too loosely and now we're in the predicament we're in right yeah and it has had so many deleterious downstream downstream effects i mean i th there's obviously been a lot of talk thanks to like the rise of diabetic medication and martin Suscrelli and all this type of thing of how of the business of 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 drugs how how does the pharmaceutical industry contribute to the issues of medical costs and doctors well they're a business so they're trying to make profits for their business and and they're coming up with wonderful things one of the most wonderful things they've come up with recently is that medications that can abolish cure hepatitis c and and Inpatients. Hepatitis C was just considered a you know a chronic, untreatable infection for the longest time. But AbbVie is one company. I don't even know which drug they have. But there's a couple of drugs out there that, if you take it as prescribed for a certain number of months, you can rid your body of hepatitis C forever. 
we haven't gotten there yet with HIV, but the HIV control medicines have gotten so much better. So thank God the drug companies are doing wonderful things that way. You know, but the, they need to be under. They're going to do their thing. What you we what you need we need to have as patients is a doctor who's able to look critically at the medications and say this is one that's good for you. I had this experience uh, just recently with my GI doctor. My autoimmune condition now has caused some liver issues. And he talked to me. I don't know if he talks to all his patients this way, but he knew he could say to me, since I'm a physician, say, Drew, you know, I'm going to recommend we try this medication for six months. It's relatively side effect free. And frankly, we're not sure if it really even works for your condition, but it's safe. Uh, and it does work for some portion of people. So we'll give this six month try. I said, sure. And as it turned out, minor side effects. When I filled the uh, prescription, uh, it was $151 for a month's supply. And I went to, I said to the pharmacy guy, that's kind of expensive. You know, I got Medicare and something and secondary insurance. Why is that 151? He says, here, look at this. He points to the top of the uh, um, piece of paper. And the usual and customary charge was $15,000 for a month's supply of this antibiotic medicine. And so my $151 was just a drop in a bucket. So if yeah. I was having to pay out of pocket for that, it would have been outrageous. So they they are definitely asking for more money than they probably deserve. And they their excuse is it's research and development, which helps us, you know, develop these medicines. And there's some truth there. But we've found it acceptable as a society that businesses working in the healthcare sector can make unconscionable profits. We've found that acceptable. And I think we need to decide that's no longer acceptable. Healthcare decisions, all decisions in the healthcare industry have to put patient welfare first. Profitability has to be second. I mean, that's going to take a major reimagining of what it means to be a success in the healthcare business. You know, you, you can you you can obviously need to make some profit to keep things going and and make the improvements that they've made in the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical and uh, health device industries, but you don't have to make unconscionable profits. Another. Yeah. Another figure I quote in my book, this gentleman, uh, Mark Berlini, his name was, he was uh, CEO of Aetna, and uh, they were merging with CVS, I think it was. Um, I might be getting those details wrong. But anyway, if the merger came across, he was due to make $500 million once the merger was closed. So a half a billion dollars, a half a billion dollar payday for pulling off a healthcare business deal. So- I think all of us can probably agree that that's too much money in healthcare. The the merger did come off to the tune of $69 billion in 2018, I learned, but I never did learn exactly what Mr. Bertolini made and put in his pocket on that. No, so I mean, let's, yeah, and let's, I mean, let's face it, there's so much kind of excess money sloshing around in the system. And, you know, in 2020, when we were talking about, um, you know, universal health care, Bernie Sanders pointed out, we spend more than our European counterparts per capita for worse outcomes and no universal access. Per capita, $9,000 a patient. We don't have universal access and we have worse outcomes. Highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, all this type of thing. There's room for those dollars to come down and for us to get more health care to more people. It's all a matter of how we're allocating these resources. And right now, it seems to me the insurance companies and the drug companies are sucking up the bulk of the money. More than their fair share. I, the, yes. Uh, 
but the, again, on the I, on the optimistic view that I keep coming back to, we can change that between you know a patient and I can decide. You, we have to develop a, a type a style of communication in which you trust me, and I trust you. And uh, interestingly, the studies show if you if a patient feels known by their doctor, they're more likely to follow through with the treatment plan that they've come. If you can say, oh yeah, Dr. Jones, he knows me really well. He, I trust his judgment. So if he tells me that we should do this and I ask a couple of questions and my questions are answered, then I'm going to do that. Yeah. You, you know, you do, you, you have fewer hospitalizations, you live longer. It seems like it's certainly worth it. And that's accessible to all of us. Like I say, overnight, you can say, I'm going to change my attitude with my doctor. When you make that announcement in your doctor's office, you're going to have to take a pause and help them back up off the floor into their chair because they're going to pass out when they hear you say that because we're beyond desperate to have patients be active as you describe yourself being Cameron. Yeah. So we're ready. No, I think most of us are ready for it. And once we start doing that, we will bring down the cost of some of the health. I think we'll bring down the cost of healthcare significantly and it's accessible to all of us. No, that's, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, we've reached the part of the show now where uh, we do plugs and we talk about where people can buy your book. So why don't you let us know where people can contact you online and, and keep the conversation going and let us know where we can I get know, the is book. That even visible. That's the, the, it is. Uh, the healing connection, a partnership for your health is it's available through the publisher soup. Uh, and actually, I'm not sure what you're going to show at the bottom of your thing, Cameron, but my name, Remignanti, is hard to remember and spell. But if you I'm on Facebook and links to the publisher um, are available uh, on my Facebook page, you have to, when you spell my name, it's R-E-M-I-G-N. If you put R-E-M-I-G-N, you'll get me and all my family members that are Remignanti's also. I'm Drew. Yes. If, you go to, if you go to my webpage, you'll see a link to the publisher. The advantage of uh, buying it from the publisher as opposed to Amazon, for example, is there's a 10% discount for the book through the publisher. And the publisher will give you the ebook for free, whereas Amazon is charging $9.99 for the ebook. And if I, in reading my book, I recommend you have, I'd like to read paper books. If you like to read ebooks, you're all set. You can just read the ebook. But I like to read paper books because I want something in my hands when I read. But as 280 references, over 250 of them have hypertext links to original sources. So if you're a critical reader, as you should be, or you can begin to be a critical reader with my book, when I when you see a hypertext link, you click on that, you'll go to the original source where I got my information so you can tell that I'm not making things up. Yeah. And so the the what you'll get when you buy through the publisher, you'll get a coupon to redeem through Amazon for the Kindle version of the ebook. You don't have to have a Kindle device, just the Kindle app, which you can also get for free on any electronic device. I'd recommend sitting in an easy chair, having a book in your lap, having some kind of an e-reader alongside you. And every time you think that can't be true, click on the e-reader, go to the original source and see whether you find it a reliable source. I've only included reliable sources. The other advantage of the hyperlinks are there's a couple of entertaining videos in there that are worth your while to look at. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast and we'll go check that out. Thanks for having me along, Cameron. I appreciate it. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. 
We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>